I'm not going to have any rules. I'm just going to study the data and say, what does it tell me? Welcome, Closers. Today, we have another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you. This is season three on profit. I'm your host, Jordan Wayla, and every week I interview world-class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who share actionable insights to help you grow your property management empire. Whether you manage 100 units or 1,000, this broadcast is designed to help you see the big picture and give you the tools and tactics that you need to get to the next level. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Reach Sun Tzu, the art of war. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Welcome, closers. Today is another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. I have some awesome guests, super excited to get into a passionate topic of profit versus growth. I am your podcast host, Jordan Wayla. Today with me, I have the Honorable Brad Larson from Rentworks and EXP. We have my good friend, Alex Osinenko, representing Four and a Half. And lastly, we have Greg Crabtree, author, mentor, teacher, and a guy that's taught me a lot about money and finance in this business. And today, we're going to be talking and going deep on this topic, which originally kind of the jumping off point of this, Greg, we had that mastermind retreat in Puerto Vallarta about 18 months, 24 months ago now. Uh, you did a financial analysis for Alex and myself in addition to the property management companies that we had out there. There was a lot of good lively debate and the conversation continues. So let's start here. Let's talk about the importance of profit and more, maybe more to flip it on the other side. In your mind, Greg, are there ever any circumstances in which it is okay to have no profit at the end of the year? Um, there's only one circumstance that you would, it would be okay to have no profit at the end of the year. And so it's based on what we call a build to sell model. And, and so the idea being I am using all of my profit, making discretionary bets to diminish my profitability to, to get growth. But I can demonstrate that if I pull the reins back and focused on profitability, the buyer would have a profitable business to work off of. So that's the only, uh, the only time that it would, it would ever make sense. And I'll give you a good example. What, it's not in this industry, but we had a client that, you know, had um, the last six years, they had zero EBITDA uh, in their business and they were doing eight and a half million of revenue and they sold for 40 million. So that, so that, that happened this summer. Uh, so that's a case where now I would say, arguably, we, we would do this exercise at the end of each year and I would ask them, what money did you spend this year that provided no benefit to the current year? it was part of you thinking that this is going to help you get get to the next level next year. And that number was roughly around 1 million to 1.2 million a year. That, that if they had decided to pull the reins back and become profitable, that would be it. So what we do is we, we I, I segregate business plays into three groups. And so the first play is what we call a run to harvest. So that's a business that the marketplace is not going to ever pay a premium for and so I'm harvesting it to be as profitable as I can because it's either a niche business 
that for some reason the marketplace doesn't really look at as as a as a scalable business, but it's highly profitable. Uh, and this is profitable after your market based wage for what you do. The second model is kind of my favorite, which is the best of both worlds. We call that a harvest to premium sale. So that means that I'm running a harvesting profitable business. I can make situational bets of spending profit to go back into the business to grow when the market allows it or when I'm ready to do it. Uh, but I've got a unique element to the business that allows me to, somebody's got to give me a premium to get that business out of my hands, uh, which typically is about a seven and a half minimum to a 10 EBITDA at a minimum, probably 10 EBITDA right now is closer to what we're seeing in the marketplace for those types of businesses. And then the third one is the bill to sell, which is you better have a big bags of money and capital backing or, um, you know, or just a lot of guts to, to take a lot of risk. So to me, every business fits in one of those three plays. And so you have to be true to yourself and say, which play am I running? Mm. Now we get to the meat of the issue. Enter Brad and Alex. Guys, this is the conversation around based on what we know about the clients, colleagues that we work with, what percentage of the market fits into these relative buckets. That's the real gut check. It's easy to want to give wholesale generic advice. That's what people want. Give me the simple one-off bullet point. Context is everything. Brad, what are your thoughts on where most PMs fit? Well, I think we may have been missing something and Greg, please help me out here. Uh, where are the tax implications along these lines? So if we make zero money at the end of the year in EBITDA, uh, doesn't that kind of minimize your tax liability? Question mark? Well, I mean, yeah, you're not paying any taxes at the moment. You're building something that I'm going to to exit at capital gain value, but I would probably say the tax arbitrage is, never enters my realm of thinking because probably to think that you're going to know what the tax structure is going to be by the time a future transaction occurs, uh, you're, you're, you're taking a bigger bet than, than probably you really ought to. So I, I'm really more focused on, hey, let taxes kind of take care of themselves. Just go make as much money as you can. I'm thinking, of, I'm thinking on the lines of like the farmer model. Okay. I grew up in Iowa, uh, Western Iowa, and you get towards the end of the year and you start people seeing, you see people start buying giant combines. So they get some of their tax liability towards the end of the year, brand new trucks, combines, et cetera, et cetera. Just to, instead of you know, showing a profit of 500,000, now they show a profit of 250,000 because they spent a quarter million on a combine. None of that matters because, you know, the only way to create true wealth creation is, is how big of a check you ultimately write to the IRS. Because if I never pay any taxes, there's only two possibilities. I either one didn't make any money or two, I cheated. And, and I don't think the farmers are cheating. They fall into this trap. And this is where everybody needs to understand, you know, to be careful what instruction you give to your accountant. Because if you tell them you don't want to pay taxes, I can easily make that happen. I'll just help you manage to where you don't make any profit. And I guarantee you won't pay any taxes. That's the biggest takeaway I had from your book. Um, this was this was really an eye opener because the trouble with this, if we like, I don't want to stay on taxes too long. But Brad, if you start sort of Mickey Mousing, and this would this is what Greg is talking in his book. If you start Mickey Mousing and, and with your books and and just kind of being as close to legal as possible, but trying to like find all these ways to evade taxation initially, you'll still pay it on the exit. Right, there's, it's it's basically what he's saying is you're gonna pay that, and if that that basically takes your mind share as a strategy, you're taking your eye off the business, which 
um, you would know what the health numbers are because you really don't know the right numbers because everything's just so kind of convoluted, Absolutely. right? Greg, is that, is that kind of what... Now, since we've chatted, yeah. I think I have found the magic pixie dust of business growth, though. Hit us. Hit us. So, you, so I, I don't know if you want to cover anything else before I hit you with... I mean, this is this is kind of a, a fascinating discovery. Well, you, can, you can't pull out magic pixie dust and put that back in the bottle, Greg, so... Yeah, so so, so here's, here's Sprinkle the deal. it, baby. Sprinkle so it. So when I wrote the original book, I had the original premise of a 10% profit target is the is 10% to me break even. The thing was, is that work for about 70% of the business models out there, but there was still 30% or so that, eh, nah, you had to do some, some maneuvering around to go, well, it probably doesn't fit them. So as I continued to study the data that we had access to, I just looked at it's really almost like an AI concept. Artificial intelligence learns, machine learning comes from just looking at data patterns rather than being bound by a set of rules. And so I said, I'm not going to have any rules. I'm just going to study the data and say, what does it tell me? And what we learned was, is you can establish the true profit target for any business based on return on invested capital. And, and so this was a concept that was I was introduced to at the EO Horton program of my EO organization that I'm in, that I, I get to chair that program. And the lead professor, he and I had a lot of good one-on-one discussions. And, and so where he studies it from a public market standpoint, I've put, brought it down to the private company sector. And what our data tells us is the, you know, probably the average is about 75% to 100% return. So a low capitalization business like uh, rental management companies, they're going to be 100 to maybe even 125% because there's very little capital that's required to be a, in a, a rent management business. It is more about how much are you going to lose before you get established. You know, Greg, I don't see those numbers. I run, and I just, I just want to interject here. I run business performance reports where, where, where I go deeply into forecasting the profitability against the marketing expense, against uh, closing ratio, and all that good stuff. And what I see on average, the annualized, annualized return on capital is between forty-five to about eighty percent, which is still a great number. But that's the number I see because getting more and more competitive. Well, depends. I, I will tell you that I've not run one on what I would consider a pro- a properly run business at the moment that was less than fifty percent that was U.S. based. We we had a, uh, a Latin America food distributor that the best I could get them to was forty percent because it gives you the appreciation of a dysfunctional trade economy of down there. They've got to carry AR from their customers one hundred and twenty to one hundred eighty days. They have to pay for their goods upon ordering, not even when they receive it. And so you've got a dysfunctional trade component, you know, of that. And so, um, so in the U.S., a a company that has that has a lot of trade capital component or infrastructure capital, um, those are going to be in the fifty percent range. But you know, the model that we run, the average is seventy five. And I would say any any business that does not carry AR or carry or uh, have much in the way of trade support that's needed or carry inventory. Those are businesses that ought to be at 100%. Um, and now, what I'll do is break down capital for you to understand because there's probably other business models that, that you know are listening to this podcast as well. So when I started looking at that, I said, well, why is that? And so there's four components of capital. So there's trade capital, which is um, every business has their signature. If you got receivables and inventory work in progress, uh, and then you've got a deduction from that of uh, – accounts payable from vendor support and deferred revenue just in case you get paid in advance 
uh, from from customers. So, you know, so like for you guys in your marketing agencies, if you actually had customers make a deposit up front and you were constantly working off of that, you would have a deferred revenue component. So you have essentially what is referred to as a customer funded business. So your trade capital really would be zero or, or maybe even negative. Infrastructure capital is pretty simple. I mean, that's fixed assets, whatever you have to pay. If you finance the rest, that kind of counts as rent. So I'm just looking at what you have to pay down. Buffer capital exists for everybody. That's the third component. So that's your two months of core capital that you need to have in cash. But the fourth piece is the magic pixie dust. And that's what I call launch capital. So let me give you an example. So I was doing this class in Omaha, Nebraska, and this guy that had a, um, a transmission uh, locations. He had 15 of them. And I said, well, Pete, I don't know your numbers. Let's see how close I can get. And I said, every time you're, you're going to open the 16th location, this is going to cost you about a million dollars for the dirt and put up a metal building. And he says, yeah, that's about right. So, so that means you got to put $200,000 down. So that's an infrastructure capital piece. And then you're going to have about $200,000 of opening costs and operating losses until that location breaks even. And he smiles and says, yeah, that's about right. So now you got 400000 as your capital input. I said, your minimum no-go decision on that location to open it or not is you got to convince yourself that within 12 months, can I be at a monthly run rate of 200000 a year profitability on that $400,000 investment? And, and really, he kind of was, was targeting 400000 would be his, his target, but two hundred would be the minimum acceptable profit target at 50% return. And he smiled and he said, well, what you just told me in two minutes took me 30 years to figure out. And, and that's the model from the launch side of it. Now, here's what we also found. And this is what this is going to make uh, Jordan, you and Alex uh, salivate over. Launch capital continues to exist throughout the life of the business. The problem is accountants have not done a good job of finding it in the P&L because of the way our rules work. So you have to think outside the rules. And so I gave you a clue when I talked to you about a client that was the bill to sell example. I said they had zero EBITDA. But what did I tell you? I said there's a million dollars a year that they're spending that does not affect current operations. So if you are a scaling business, you have to have three columns for your P&L. I've got the complete column of the total of the business activity. I'm going to extract from that, what did I make discretionary choices to spend money on in the current year that is going to not pay off until the future year? And I got to pull that piece out because that is my launch capital investment. It's embedded into my profit and loss statement. It's not on the balance sheet. All right. Now you're talking about language, Greg. Not that. See, that's. Yeah. I, I have an example for so you. Once I extract finish, that, I then I have the picture of the current operating state of the ongoing business in its ordinary organic state, and so then I can evaluate the business as saying, in an ongoing organic state, am I profitable? Am I sustainable? Now, then I get into the what do I, what are my choices for the utilization of profit? Do I harvest them? Do I reinvest? The reason why I started this discussion with setting the expectation of return on invested capital is if you have a market that wants, that wants more of what you do and you're capable of doing more of what you do, you'd be an idiot to not reinvest in the business because what investment is going to get you 75% return? 
Yeah. Mic drop. Mic yeah. drop. Now you can spend That's... it on a boat and a vacation property. Thank you. But you know, so we have a case study example of a client. Now, Alex, you're going to love this one. So we've got a client that we started working with in 2012. And so their catalytic spend was marketing. So we actually know from working with them every month, they were about 800,000 in, in 2012. And they, each year they made an intentional choice to spend more money in marketing. And then once the sales showed up, they would backfill with the labor to support it. So we knew that the discretionary choice in that whole thing was just the, the marketing spend. The first year they spent uh, 121,000 dollars got 55,000 in profit back. So they had about 45% return. So they said, okay, close. We're good. Let's try that again. So they spent about another 120,000. They got a 300%, no, a 400% return in the second year. I mean, so, so our harsh return calculation is what is the choice spend that I made? And then how much did net profit go up after that includes that spend? So that, that's where we look at return. So the return, I mean, you can always get into how much new revenue did I generate? How much new margin did I generate? And all those kind of things. But at the end of the day, I'm going to be a harsh calculator. I'm going to look at did net income go up from this catalytic spend? Because that's where the return is. And so at a minimum, if I'm going to use launch capital to, to throw gas on the fire and grow a business throughout its lifetime, it is how much, do, you know, if, if I'm going to increase my marketing spend by 100 grand, net income from the previous year needs to go up 50,000, all things after all those costs, because the, the marketing spend is the catalyst, but you're going to add other operating expenses and all those things. So my, the only number I got to look at uh, and when I'm done to know, did it work, is did net income go up? Now, there's some businesses that have a longer sales cycle, so I got to use a 24-month window to look at it. But, you know, and, and so if I'm going 24 months, I'm going to probably push to 100% return is, is what a good choice would be. But this company did this over a five-year period. They grew from 800000 to $10 million in revenue in five years and, made, and never made less than 10% profit in any of those years. They self, self-funded it. And, I mean, it was a, a, the perfect case study example of success. So I love what I'm hearing. You are bullish when there's accountability in place. You're all for throwing that money back on it. If there is an accountability mechanism, can you we swing over and can you describe what it looks like when the accountability mechanism is not in place? A business owner that's very willing to spend and is looking at top line, for example, but, but can't be bothered to get into the weeds with, with profit. Yeah, if, if you're not going to look at that, I mean, you're just wasting money because because I will tell you, these guys that had the tech company that sold, they actually honestly told me every year that the money they spend got wasted because it actually had no impact that all of their top line growth was actually organic from their just because of their place in the market. And and so I look at it now, they sold for a nice number, but they could have pocketed $4 million more over the last four years of the business had they been more judicious because they weren't making good bets with what they chose to spend money on. And so you have to ask yourself, there's two questions for growth. One, do, do I know that the market wants more of what I do? And two, do I have the capacity to execute on that? And I, I guess the third one is, do I know how to then get that market access? Now, market access comes in two flavors. And David Wessel, who was the lead professor at our Horton class, 
I, I love this statement that he tells the class every year. He says, it, it's not about, it's not about share. It's about where. And so you're going to get to your share very likely fairly quickly in most markets that you serve. The people who really scale change their where. So the thing that kind of allowed us to just break through that piece is, I mean, my, my clients aren't in Huntsville, Alabama, you know, for the most part. So we, we do work all over the world. So I changed my where and I don't have to take lawyers to lunch or bankers to lunch anymore. And so it's kind of nice. Um, and I can beat them on the golf course whenever I want to. So I think from that standpoint, I think where you choose, where you want to pull back from that and, and go into harvest mode is if I don't have the emotional energy that if I need to change my where, that's a much more complex operational delivery decision than I can get more share of the marketplace that I have. So one of you guys, you know, mastermind people that I did the session for, she has a very nice niche business. And she is, she's doing a good job of, of getting plenty of leads and being very selective and doing probably what I would call a blend of organic slash a little bit of a nudge growth. So she's spending enough of, of launch capital and growing just enough, but she's, she's got a, a, a niche where, and she doesn't want to get outside of that where because she has a really good understanding of that market. And, and, and really that's probably one of the best plays that I've seen run in the property management business. Yeah. Yeah. It is definitely a profitable scenario and we could, we could go on there. I do want to tease out the potential tension. There was some heated debate early on profit versus growth. Brad, I want to give the, the mic to you to, to hear you kind of voice what concerns or what models are you suspect of in terms of holding up as being healthy? Like, what do you think the thrust of encouragement should be for business owners in our space? And where do you think folks fall off the rails? Number one is going to be the growth revenue, basically making more revenue at the top of line. Without that growth revenue generation, the profit's going to be minimal, if any. And so you dig deeper into that, going down to the tactics of it is all going to be business development growth and also fee development maxing, doing the fee max campaigns. Because a lot of people get caught up into what the market is doing on the management fees, which is easy. You can look left and right and copy them. But what you're missing out is 50 cents or more per dollar management fees that you should or could be collecting for non-management fee revenue that will make up the difference and get you to the profit point. And so Alex, I'm going to ask you this. So you guys have an ongoing debate. What about his comments, Greg's comments recently, was caused you to do the mic drop thing because you, you felt like you were validated. What what was that that he mentioned that kind of spurred your, your growth? Because I know you guys are focused, I mean, Alex in particular, you're focused on the business development of websites and stuff like this. So take it from there. Yeah. So I'm actually going to give a, a quick story example that I wrote down here as Greg was speaking. And and here's what initially Greg and I, well, I disagreed with Greg's assessment. He's, he's, he's done a really good hygienic sort of um, look through all of my books and, and P&Ls and, and the outcome of it, well, well, like four and a half is not making that profit. I was like, I tell Greg, that's kind of intentional. This is all the things that we're doing um, because we feel there's market opportunity. And so the same example I'm seeing throughout a lot of customers, for example, let's say Columbus, Ohio, it, average cost per lead is, let's say $90. Let's all, all in all, 
everything all together, let's say costs you $700 to acquire a customer in Columbus, right? Makes sense. But your annual contract value, now the value of that customer over the period of 12 months is $2,800. So you're paying back your acquisition cost the less than three months. And if you're not doubling down on this, you know, competition will come. In two, three years, this is going to be gone because the numbers, these numbers look ridiculous, right? And that's why you see all the big money coming in. That's why you see the private equity. That's why you see the VC money going after this opportunity because the unit economics, that's what that is. So when the opportunity is there, you need to double down. And the drop the mic for me was when Greg said launch capital. There's this concept of a launch capital where it's intentional. And let's say I'm back my Columbus, Ohio property management office. What I'm doing with that money, I'm acquiring units as fast as I can, but I'm also diversifying into CBUs, you know, complementary business units. Let's say EXP Realty, right? That's what you got, right? right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, so in other words, you can actually pretty much down to mm, within a couple thousand bucks, estimate how many properties will sell over the next three, four years and know there is a potential revenue from that complementary business unit above and beyond your portfolio. So your portfolio should feed these other units sitting on top of it and sort of interacting with the portfolio. And, and this, is, this is sort of a, an, almost an empire building, land and expand. Start with a PM portfolio, make it profitable, Jordan. I'm not saying you don't make the portfolio profitable, but I'm saying you invest that profit in launch capital. And I think what you see is your 6% overall profitability as an industry. I think that is a skewed number because there's a lot of growth in this industry and a lot of smart people invest that right back in the companies. Or am I, am I not understanding this correctly? Jordan, what do you, how do you connect that 6% versus launch capital versus opportunity? So the, the CBUs is a legitimate thing that we definitely didn't factor in. So we didn't factor in money from brokerage and that 6% also didn't factor in revenue from maintenance. For a lot of folks, that's a non-issue because they don't do maintenance markup or have any maintenance income. So I do think, and that's a part of what we're working on with the NARPA accounting standard is a more holistic picture of what actually contributes to bottom line profit. That said, the whole growth conversation is very complicated for a couple of reasons. And Greg, even though you're not in the market sales and marketing business, I'm sure you've seen this as well. There are oftentimes attempts to put money back into growth that simply don't work. Kind of the progression that I see is the first thing the business owner realizes is that growth is that growth actually matters. It's important. And so they kind of pony up to sign that check. After that, they realize that not only does it matter, it's an incredibly, it's probably the single greatest financial driver within the business if done well. And so then they go from writing a check to be willing to actually mentally engage with it, like Brad does. It's not Brad's all-out focus. He's managing the whole thing. But Brad, Brad has been willing to take on learning sales and marketing enough to be driving that aspect of the overall game plan, not just writing a check. For the people that work higher up on that ladder, the more optimistic I am about the financial return that they're going to get on the growth investment. But there's a lot of folks that are running unprofitable businesses that have no clue with growth. And that's where the accountability and discipline of profit is the number one conversation to be having in my mind. I think the fact that we've developed a process to help you know, like I said, I, you know, there's times that I've counseled people to just be profitable where they're at. There's times I've counseled people to take advantage of the market and grow. 
the key is like you're saying, Jordan, you, you've got to have an accountability factor to say, if I make a bet, I must establish an expectation of result or else I am just randomly, you know, putting chips on the table and rolling the dice. And I'm not really keeping track of what's in my baggie until uh, I was at a conference in San Francisco this week uh, or last week. And the guy was presenting on artificial intelligence and future technology and all these things. And he had a quote, I believe from Faulkner. And uh, there's a line in one of his novels and he's, he was asking the guy says, well, how did you go bankrupt? And he says, well, uh, gradually and then suddenly. And, and I think a growth without accountability is a gradually and then suddenly impact that hits a lot of people because I, I had a call this morning with a technology client that kind of went all in on selling a bunch of subscription licenses that granted gets a higher value in the business sale marketplace, but it's got very bad cash flow considerations and they've taken their eye off the ball of the other things that make them money to live off of. And all of a sudden they wake up and realize I've got to focus on profitability. So I really think it's that idea of establishing, you know, is, you know, I, I keep teasing this out that this is kind of the stuff that'll be in simple numbers 2.0, but I, I believe we've really uncovered the, the significant accountability element of growth strategy is making a bet, separating growth expenditures from normal operating structure P&Ls so that I'm holding people accountable to results. And you've got to start with that process and say, how much am I willing to bet? You know, we, we had a call yesterday with a restaurant client that nicely profitable business, except this year their profitability is down. And the owner was going to doing a meeting with his investors tomorrow. And, and we just did an off the cuff quick analysis that basically showed that he really, in his normal operations, he was exactly where he needed to be. It was all of this stuff that he spent for the, the expansion that they haven't opened up yet for their, their footprint of their restaurant. And so you can look at the bottom line and tell yourself a lot of stories. I can let myself off the hook. Oh, I'm trying to grow. That's why it's bad. And, and so I can explain it away if I want one bent of, of giving myself an excuse. Or, but I'd really rather you say, I'm, I'm happy that you, you risk it, but tell me what did you get for that? And stop making bad bets is, is really kind of, um, and I, I really think most entrepreneurs when put under a, a harsh um, calculation of results of that spend, they're going to change their bet once they know that somebody's keeping score. I mean, just like what you guys do in the marketing realm, when you really do metrics on the effectiveness of marketing, you know, people stop spending if they don't see results. Well, I mean, I, I kind of, you know, or they try something different, you know, and those are the, they either stop spending or they try something different, but they do something different. And, and, and I really think that's kind of my passion around the idea of literally, like I said, we've had clients that, you know, it, you can be a niche business to where there's only so much you can get. And, and so to a certain degree, you, pr you don't really want to maximize that business because the next percentage of market share to be gained is not as profitable as the where you're at. And, and so you actually go backwards as you, you know, try to get bigger. And so every business has its own little characteristics. And so I don't know that there's necessarily universal principle, but I, I think that's why we came up with, tell me what business play you're running 
And now let's separate operations from growth initiatives. And now let's let's hold it accountable. And let's see how good of a better you are. And do we need to improve our our scouting of market opportunity? So this concept of what playbook are you running is really helpful. And Alex and Brad, love to hear you guys chime in on what playbook you think most property managers you see out there being capable of actually executing against. We didn't, I didn't ask you, Greg, but I'm just going to intuit that you don't believe that the build the sell is the right playbook for the vast majority of entrepreneurs. Fair? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It, it, it is the smallest percentage. It certainly has the highest upside. And now you don't want to do a build to sell in an industry that will never provide you a premium on exit. It's a 401 strategy. It's not a 101 strategy. Alex, Brad, feedback on what you think is actually within execution range for, for most PMs. But how, how do you learn it, Greg? There's no school. Uh, there's no school of entrepreneurship. Unfortunately, our, our education system is completely designed to build worker bees, right? Designed to build talented worker bees. But entrepreneurship is, you, say, you have to go seek it elsewhere, right? You have to really be set or be familiar with someone. But let me make a quick point here. The problem, and Steve Welty and a lot of people I talk to, and, and, and this is even for Brad, man, I'm just going to admit it, man. I asked Brad, like, Brad, what is it that you want? Like, what is your, your business is going? And he's not quite clear, right? I don't think you and I, Brad, got, he's like, I just want to win, right? That's your kind of motor, right? I want to win. I want to win. I think the challenge with a lot of small business owners, Greg, and, and, and that's why we've seen this flexibility and, and movement all over the the oscillation between profitability and growth, and nobody knows really what's going on because nobody really sees the end. They have the as the end in mind. As an example, like I have very specific. I have zero interest running a small business. I want to run a fast-growing business. I want to help small businesses grow. That's my that's my passion. That's where I want to be. As soon as I feel like I tap the opportunity, I'd probably start looking elsewhere or look at complementary business units. But it's it's sort of like I have a target, I have a goal, I have a vision. This is where I'm going. I have zero interest running an immensely profitable business that is a small business where I get to be the guy that keeps everything in his head. Everybody's asking me questions. No, I, I, zero interest. But and that's that's the problem. How do we help these business owners have a vision that clearly articulated? And then you can bring Greg. And then you can bring Jordan, Profit Coach. Then you can bring other services to really back it up and help you build this out. But there's no vision. There's no connection. So it's just kind of flopping around. That's what I see. But I think those little guys, you know, there's a significant amount of infant death amongst those businesses because they don't understand those principles. And, and so those are businesses that could have made it. So I'll take that lead there. So going back to the root of this conversation, we're trying to get to the point of where we're addressing why that a lot of property management companies are only running a six or 8% profit margin. So a lot of that is because, you know, if we take some of the models that we've seen, you and I have talked about this, you've had them on your, had them on your shows, the folks that run a property management company is like a holding pen for listings. They run it to get other controlled business units going, such as title companies or maintenance or sales or any of those things. I mean, we even created a, a rekey company here in San Antonio for that exact reason. We had the capability of running it off of the management company. And so we're, we're probably in those same lines as we're not as profitable as we should be, but it's not as easy to design. I mean, we can't design it from the ground up to be profitable. I understand it's, it's like the chicken and the egg concept. You got to have one versus the other um, before you can really get to that point. Nobody sits around, Greg, I love you. 
but nobody sits around as a management company owner and say, I'm going to design this to be one of those three techniques, either run to harvest, harvest to premium, or built to sell. I mean, none of us run that like that. You know, a lot of us are garage-based but we're not. A lot of us are garage-based startups. Uh, we get to a point where we can expand into a real legitimate business, and we try to grow it and, and improve it as we go. So I'm kind of defending the little guy a little bit because a lot of the stuff we're talking about is so high above us that it's difficult to grasp. So it goes back to what I said earlier about what I kind of came to understand at this conference I was at that was talking about how, how machine learning is starting to happen. I mean, these guys predicted, they, they showed us a video of the computer calling a hair salon to make an appointment for their client, and you couldn't tell it was a computer. It had the same vocal tics that a human would have of the ums, yes, that's fine. And and it responded to the randomness of the of what the hair salon person, you know, gave them as options. And and the guy, when he finished showing the video, he says, there will be no humanly manned call centers in five years. That that's that's where the technology is going. And it's learning that because of pattern recognition. And so I will tell you that in all my work with entrepreneurs, the one thing that I've learned to get an idea across is to tell more stories and to talk less principles. So I, if I use a principle, I'm going to use my rule of three. So I've got my, here's the three business plays. So I can get your head. You guys have already got your head wrapped around those three choices. And so next time you think about your business model, hopefully you're going to think back to what I said and say, what am I, which play am I running? Am I a running team? Am I a passing team? Am I a balance team? Hey, but I've got to have an offensive philosophy of how I'm going to attack the marketplace. And I've got to align both my strategy to my finances. I can't have a mismatch between my funding capacity. You know, a business that has no capital and is growing, you know, I've got to create capital. How do I create capital? The easiest way to create capital is profitability. And then I can grow to the rate that I can create more, more profitability to keep reinvesting. And, and, and so that is the fastest way to grow. It's something that I've learned. I've got a, a phrase that I've been saying of late. It says, I, I want people to understand money chases easy. Entrepreneurs overcome hard. And, and so the reason why the private equity firms and all those are moving into any market space is because they're chasing easy. They see something that is metrically driven. They're willing to accept half or less of the return on investment that an entrepreneur needs to have to be successful. And so you've got to understand that piece because money chases easy. Entrepreneurs overcome hard, which is why I've got to get to that 50% or better return on invested capital piece because I don't have the cash to risk to get away with it. We, we've got one of our private equity firms that I found out today that they're, they've invested in this company and they're literally shutting it down. Uh, and, you know, and it's kind of one of those things, well, I mean, you know, nobody's going to miss any meals from the private equity firm because they've got money. They, they're those guys. I mean, it hurts to, to give up on an investment that you make, but you also quit putting money down a dry hole too. And, and so you, that's what money has the capacity to do. Those of us that have to rub $2 bills together to make the third. Okay. I've got to be a little more careful and work my way up in that process. But as I said earlier, the first thing that I've got to do for a guy that's doing a million a year in, in revenue is have them understand 
that now you can take out this profit and go spend it and increase your lifestyle. But I do want to remind you that if I can grow my business by leaving that profit in after I've paid the tax, I will actually get 100% or better return. If, if properly deployed. And that number repeats itself over and over and over again for especially the property management companies that we, we run the numbers for because they're not a high capitalization model. The biggest capitalization risk that a property management company is going to deploy is launch capital. It is the bets on things and, and their, their bets are going to come in two choices. It's marketing spend to get new customers. And does that work or not for them? Did they take the right strategy? Or two, hiring people. So we've had a couple of property management companies that we've had to really counsel and press hard to trim their staff back to a profitable level and grow more carefully into that management footprint. Because, you know, because our you guys know the way we look at data the profitability model starts with your management labor, not your direct labor. You know, I, I set my output standard of the business by who I have on my management team. And what is that multiplier times that management labor is what the output is. And if that management team go, can't go get me that quantity of volume, I'm wasting money. I got I may have a shiny convertible, but it's got four flat tires sitting in the, in the driveway because it looks nice, but it just doesn't run. And, and that's what a weak management labor you know, person is that, that's not performing. So let's talk more about this concept of staff for growth. The study found that the average management company is spending 60% of revenue on labor. The overall concept of being staff for growth is basically that I have a little more staff than I need right now, but I'm going to grow into it. Where it becomes tenuous is that most small businesses really struggle to deploy a sales marketing dollar and get a commensurate financial return. Brad, you have colleagues and peers that I'm sure you've talked with this about. What do, what do you think is the right or the wrong sense in which you think that staff for growth can actually be a meaningful response to, to a lack of profit? Yeah, first off, it's not a derogatory thing, right? So we always pick on you a little bit that you're picking on us as staff for growth property management companies. And where you want to basically elaborate on that is when people sit on an extra employee or two telling you they're staff for growth, but they have no baseline for that growth, meaning they've been flatlined for several years, then it's not justified to have that. You know, I hear that. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. You've never been unstaffed for growth. You've never been on that side like we have when you get five uh, negative reviews in a weekend because no one's answering your maintenance calls. Okay, now we have been, you know, air quote staff for growth, but we've had a good 20 to 25 to 30% growth every year for the last four or five years. So we are staff for growth and we need more staff. So we're trying to hire, but the folks that don't, that are flatlined, that applies to them. And so if they're not making profit, it goes back to my original comment from the very beginning, it's revenue generation. They're not generating the revenue because you you guys have talked to them. The the mindset of we can't charge any other fees, we can't raise our management fees, can't do that. Our clients will leave us, our our employees will revolt and walk out. That mindset kills the opportunity for profitability. And more than the staffers is the mindset because a staffer may cost you 40 grand, but a one strategic move for one fee or one raise of a fee could be 200 grand. So what's going to be the bigger play? I mean, yeah, you might lose a few clients, but you're going to gain in the end. Uh, that's the same, you know, stuff you've heard that you guys are have. I think you're going to have a, 
uh, if you've heard from Dennis Youssef or Darren Hunter or any of those Australian guys, they hone in on that biz dev and they hone in on the fee maxing concept. There's not a lot of that going on sometimes and people are afraid of it. And it's a mindset. Yeah. I'm not really in love with fee maxing. I think value added. I think maximizing value, right? It's just the terminology is just fee maxing. I mean, you can get priced out eventually, right? If somebody's, you know, if those investors are, are, you know, getting on an $80 a month services from people like Rent or Warehouse or similar initially and getting and feel they're getting the same quality of service, you're going to get priced out, right? So I think it's a value um, ma maxing. It's a relationship maximization. Renter's warehouse model, to be honest with them, they charge you a little bit up front and then they spank you on the backside on the leasing fees. So it's not a redu reduction in, in actual management fee costs. So if they're coming in invading and storing it's perception. perception. So they're actually yeah. uh, less than honest in their portrayal of what they're doing with those management fees because then they charge you two months worth of leasing fees, right? It's ridiculous. So, right. that's so, so it makes sense. Let me, let me finish my point, uh, guys. I'm sorry. I, I didn't want to dive into the fee max versus value. And I just, I just like the industry. To, if you change the language, it's going to be more palatable for the customer to actually pay the, the additional fee for additional value. But in any event, my, my, my challenge is, I have 28 people working for me. Brett, how many people do you have working for me? For you? Right about the same. About 28. All right. Jordan, you have a few? A couple? Yeah, I got about five. Okay. Yeah. And Greg, how many people do you have working for you? About 45. 45. Okay. So people are not units. And this is the thing. Stop for growth. I will gladly invest in someone who has shown the capability, but it's going to take onboarding, uh, say yeah, a qualified account manager takes a year and a half to make, maybe 14 months, okay? It's just it. I mean, I, I'm gonna ha I'm not going to have dum-dum sitting there representing my company, right? So there's this, this pattern. And until we get to a certain scale where that salary of that one account, additional account manager in training who's not producing the labor at a labor efficiency rate we want them to produce, Greg, until we have that trained up, until we have at the volume where that percentage is not as significant, it, it's going to always look like stifling for growth. And I'm not defending that, again, for, for businesses that are not growing, but I'm defending that because, look, we need qualified, smart people. I, have, I can outsource all of the menial labor I still need quality, smart people to represent, you know, my company to customers, and I wouldn't put just anyone on the phone, right? Or, but I, but I think I think all of us would agree. I mean, if we were doing a plan for growth, we would go through the steps of saying, "Here's the cost that I'm intentionally spending for growth. I've given you guys a new way of looking at it. So let's let's do the three column model to to be very intentional. Of here is my true operating model. Here is my investment for growth of just the catalytic spins, not the the, the relationship costs that may float with it. But here's my in, my discretionary choices. And so once I segregate those, now I understand. You know that reconciles to the total. And then what am I what am I expecting in return? And my recommendation is I'm going to expect no less than a fifty percent return within twelve months. 100% within 24 if the first 12 months is something. And that's to, net to income. Just, you, you you're talking about against net, net, net income. Okay. Against net income. That, that, that's my framework. But realistically, I mean, you, you can put whatever number you want on there. I'm going to tell you the number that my data tells me that I, I've got to look for, but establish an expectation. And so once you go through that exercise, and I guarantee you that 
99 out of 100 of the people who are trying to apply some growth strategy are not doing that homework. So, so that, that, that's really kind I of wasn't. Where, I, I wasn't. Yeah. You just basically, yeah, the conversation you and I last had, it was like, hey, drop the labor, you know, this and that. And, and I agreed financially. Like if I look, if I was in the choir of four and a half today, I'd come here slashing and dashing, baby, dude. I'd be making 30%, 40% bottom line. But like, now you give me an opportunity to go account for it. Brett, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. And then so, yeah, and I, and I appreciate it because at the time that you and I were chatting, that seeing of that pattern had not emerged in my data study, you know, because like I said, I keep, I keep asking questions of the pattern and so of, of the data and say, what patterns emerge? And I think where you guys can help all the people that you're trying to help is the more examples of each of those things that I think th this current generation, especially, we're all brought up as pattern learners, not rules learners. And, and so my, my, my two-year-old granddaughter can't even speak in a complete sentence, knows how to use an iPhone because she's a pattern learner already at two years old. As we're growing rapidly and adding staff, one of the, our challenges is, you know, we, we kind of operate a little differently than, than most in our industry. So I've got to create my own teaching and learning for these people. So we're, we're trying to apply these rapid deployment training processes that really is a lot more of examples, examples, examples with a little bit of theory so that you really get people up to speed really fast. And I think exactly for all the things that, that the three of you guys are doing, I mean, you know, I, I think that's exactly the way to communicate it because otherwise, you know, you can talk theory till the cows come home, but it, but it really is show me a case study, show me the example and show me the underlying why did that work? Because there's a commonly held belief that five times EBITDA is the neutral value of a business. Well, the thing is, is nobody can tell you why that is, except I discovered the why when I wrote my original book is, well, it's three times net income plus equity because that's the number that can be cash flowed on an ongoing basis. And a business that's properly capitalized has roughly two years of, of targeted profitability in equity to go along with the three years of profit that you base it off of. That's why it's a five. But they don't teach that in school. They just tell you that it's a five. The reason why I discovered it was because I kept trying to solve a problem. If I have two 50-50 shareholders, how do I establish the value of a business so that one 50% owner cannot, can get the other 50% guy out without bankrupting their business? And, and what is, what's the equilibrium price? And, but as I was trying to solve that problem, the other pattern emerged as, the, oh, that's why that number is. There's some, some deep stuff. Brad, what are you thinking? Let's go back to the uh, burning question that a lot of folks may have. So in the profit coach study, you found a profitability rough margin of 6%. Was that the average figure? Getting a north-south to 6% from you. Greg, group, where should we be? Question mark. Defer to Greg on that one. I, I, well, one quick, one quick note here. I think you might have to reinvestigate or at least on an individual basis, figure out what that discretionary choices column lay in those in the businesses studied because it looks to me a, you know, that launch capital capital is not being accounted for. Right, right. I, I, I would agree. I, I think given the capitalization of the property management business structure that 
I, I would want to be focused on a 15% profit exclusive of any launch capital spend that's embedded yeah. in my profitability. Right. And so then I'm intentionally diminishing my profitability by five to 9% to invest in things that are going to help me grow. So is that taking that from other industries? So if you look at a service industry outside of what we property management, real estate, is that kind of where they're sitting? Is that 15% yeah. threshold? Yeah, because given the, given the capitalization structure, because you're not caring, you're getting paid as you go. The only capital that I have is some basic office furniture and two months of operating expenses in cash, um, you know, in reserves. I mean, that that's pretty much where I need to be uh, to, to have a, a consistent, you know, profitable business that's going to probably play out time and time again. Now, I, I, I can tell you of, of the people that I've looked at, I mean, that number can easily be 30% too when you're a super high performer. Now, the top 25% of performers in the study, the way that we calculated it, ignoring brokerage revenue, ignoring maintenance income, et cetera, were at 28%. That was the top 25%. We're right at 28%. I, I bet if I go in and purchase Brad's company right now, you know, just let's say he's ready to exit. I happen to be the guy who, who he wants to replace him. I go in and I say, say my goal now, I'm close to retirement. I just want to have a cash flow business. I go get RentWorks. I do, I do my analysis and cuts or grow into the current staffing. I bet I'd be pulling 20, 30%. Easy, right, Brad? Easy. If he was just milking this thing. Yeah, I mean, it also goes back to the, the, the ratios that this sh should be trading at. You know, a company like mine or anybody's out there that wants to exit, is it the one to two times revenue? Is it the five to seven times EBITDA? That's always the bottom line of this discussion as, because that you kind of generate from the bottom going up to see where your profit and expenses should be. Yeah, because, I mean, I, and I, I, don't, I don't have any immediate insight into the transactions going on in your industry. I can tell you from a general rule, Anything that has recurring revenue, private equity is overpaying for. They've moved down in terms of transaction size because there's not enough bigger companies for them to deploy their funds to. Uh, so, um, you know, so typically, you know, if you get to five million plus, you, you know, in just about any business these days of, of real revenue, you know, then, you know, that's that starts to get, you know, you on the, the radar of somebody that might be interested in buying you. You just have to look at it and say, you know, for that recurring revenue, there has to be a secondary stickiness of, of customer, you know, that goes along with it. And I think of the of the property management people that I've worked with, some have more sticky customers than others. And so if you're getting leads from customers that are short term or two or three years or less, you're not going you're not going to probably get a premium versus somebody who has just a long term relationship and those keep going. Um, you know, that, that, that could be something that, uh, you know, might, you know, be a nice premium. Cause like I said, that private equity firm has, they're sitting on hot money that they got to do something with. And that's very hard you know, to say, by the way, real estate is so cyclical and it's all very market dependent. Uh, most companies would serve any landlord. Very few focus on exclusively investors. And if you do, you're not diversifying enough because investors start, start going out of your market. You done. You're like sitting there. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I'm saying the private equity investor, the private equity firm trying to buy property management. I, I get it. So, I understand. Yeah. I'm just saying it's very hard for them, for the private equity to estimate the lifetime value of a given client in a portfolio or average even. 
it, there's, the history is not always you know what's going to happen in the future. It's not an indication of the future because of the markets, right? I mean, Brad, you see it. You know, things fluctuate. In any sort of technical market where you have reluctant landlords coming in and out or in a mix in there with investors, I mean, it's just too hard to predict necessarily what the next year and the next year is going to be. One piece of legislation, one election can change a market really quick. So you have to kind of avoid the up and down markets that are, you know, appreciating 25%, then depreciating 15% the next year. Uh, steady markets are good. Monthly recurring revenue is king. And that's what everybody wants. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, I would probably lean to the fact that if I was talking to a property management business and the ones that I have as clients, I, I, I kind of position them to a harvest to premium sale model because I don't know if a premium sale opportunity is going to come along but you'd be crazy to sell unless a premium opportunity was presented. So the idea is I want to make it very profitable. I, I might skimp a little bit on growth. So the idea is I would, you know, like Alex said, I mean, my goal would be to run them at 20, maybe throw five back into growth uh, launch capital to knock it back to 15. But probably if you're really effective in your, your marketing efforts, I mean, that's probably going to get you about all the growth that you can probably effectively um, absorb anyway, because, you know, sometimes it's that growth that sometimes kills you that, you know, you start getting, you know, clients that really aren't a good fit or it's, it's stuff. Well, that, the growth in property know. management, Greg, is the, is the CBU realm as well, right? I don't think portfolio should be a singular destination for growth because there's only so much of that market. You can start jumping different markets, but geographically, you're going to get spread and like a lot of my friends who do that, they feel, they feel the pain of this, of being extremely spread out. I, you know, in my, in my view, that's a valid way to grow, but, but building CBUs on top of that and investing money from a portfolio into a realty, right, that actually has a stable, consistent selling history, right, or future and, and other complementary business, investor services. There's, there's tons of other things like Reiki. I mean, that's, that's pretty, I didn't hear that before. I'm going to go ahead and give myself the final word here because it's my podcast. This was great. I really enjoyed the rigorous debate here. If I was going to summarize, I would say this. No matter where you're at, have a business model that is worth scaling, that is functioning. On occasion, I have a conversation that goes like this. I talk to somebody that they're struggling. Business is not making a lot of money. And the solution that they propose is my goal is to triple the size of the business in the next 18 months. That's my solution. There's a lot of dysfunction, but I want to scale it to where it'll somehow get better. Doesn't work that way. Get a business model in place that is worth scaling and then blow it out. Get aggressive. Do what Brad Larson is doing. Master the sales and marketing functions and make it a priority within your business. Alex and I are not going to stop banging on that bandwagon, but there is that prerequisite of having a functional business model. Thank you all you guys for coming on. Final question for you, Greg. Is that Joey Coleman's book on your desk behind us? Never lose another customer? I think it is. Yes. Oh yeah, baby. We got him coming out to the PM Grow Summit. It's going to be a great event. Let's drop that a little bit. Let's sprinkle that dust a little bit. So Joey Coleman, great guy, world-class speaker. He really kills it on the onboarding process, talking about managing the customer experience, differentiation, which is where profit comes from. If you're in a commodities-based business, 3% profit is acceptable at a billion dollars in revenue. But if you're running a small business, differentiation, the customer experience is what people pay premium for. And we're excited to have Joey Coleman speaking at the event. I've seen him speak several times and he's a, he's a fantastic speaker that'll be well worth listening to. 
He's got the juice. Austin in April 2019. See you guys there. Thanks for coming on, guys. All right. Thank you. Talk soon. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Please subscribe and leave us a review. Your feedback makes this a better show, and the more reviews we get, the better our guests become. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget that you can find us online in the Profitable Property Management Facebook group, where we mastermind with the best in the industry.